Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody. This is Luther King of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. If you liked this interview with Rudy Kalis, please rate, subscribe, and review. If you have guests that you would like for me to contact to try to get on this particular podcast, you may email me at Luther, L-U-T-H-E-R, dot King, K-I-N-G, dot T, as in Tom, S as in Sam, B as in Brenda, at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at K-I-N-G underscore T-S-B. And now, enjoy the interview with Rudy Kalis. How did you get your start? And in high school, were there opportunities to broadcast? Or was broadcasting even on your radar in your younger years? No, I had no had no interest, had no idea. I remember a couple of things very vividly. Number one, I remember being at the Wisconsin. I went uh, growing up in Milwaukee. I went to mm-hmm. the Wisconsin State Fair at the fairgrounds, and there was a local television station, an NBC station, that had a noon show, and they were going live from the fairgrounds, and people were milled all around, and they were in there, and they were coming around with a microphone, talking to some of the people, and I'm standing there, and I see them about to be one of those people in line, and they might speak to me, might not. I buried myself and retreated and got out of there as quick as I could. (laughs) I also remember playing basketball and we played games. We were good enough that we played some games live on a broadcast on television on a Friday night. The broadcaster didn't have any wireless mics and I had a pretty good game and they wanted to interview me and they called me over to do an interview and the game was over and I just shook my head and ran into the locker room. I wasn't going to have anything with it. I had no idea that that, uh, that broadcasting would ever be a part of my life when I was in high school. My high school yearbook says, uh, as a senior, said what my ambition was, was to be a high school basketball coach. That was it. <laughs> So when you retreated and folks wanted to do an interview with you, what lessons did you feel like you learned when you bolted out as quickly as you possibly could? But what did you feel like was the biggest takeaway when you said, no, I don't want to. Well, there is no real takeaway. Yeah, it's just shyness. It's the difference between kids now. Now, you know, all the years that I broadcast mm-hmm. here, we go to high school football, go to anywhere, and kids come running up. Hey, man, take my picture. Hey, do me an interview. It's just <laughs> society has changed. That we're much more social media conscious. We certainly are, and, and kids are much more outgoing in that respect. I, you know, I'm in high school in the '60s. That's a different time when you ran away from that stuff and you were just plain embarrassed and shy by it. I couldn't do any public speaking. I, if I had an English class I probably I stuttered through it because I just was embarrassed being in front of people and that's all it was it was just societal that it was a different era and a different time do you think now we've lost the help your fellow man and it's now oh what can I get out of people how can I you know use a person to get what I want at a scoreboard and then move on to somebody else and get what you can get out of them do you feel like we've lost some things in our cultured society 
I think there's a mix. There's some of that, certainly, but that's, again, part of human nature. There are those people that will always want to draw from people or suck from people and do that. But I also think there are a great many people now who are wanting to help and be and reach out. And this virus is helping us go through that. A lot mm -hmm. of younger people, people kind of downgrade uh, millennials, and they think they're all self-serving. They're not. Uh, they're, they're very thoughtful to the idea of wanting to help their fellow man. So it's a real mix. It's just that there's more going on in this world, more varieties of people, and we're just more aware of those kinds of things. So that uh, that's that's my perception. I know we talked about this before, but how big for you is faith, and when did you know faith was going to be a major part of your everyday life, the person behind the camera, on mic, on helicopter, in basically everyday life from either on TV and off? Well, that's an evolution of time. I grew up in a, in a Christian grade school, then I went to a Christian high school. Uh, and then I went into the Air Force, went in the service after that, and uh, sort of lost touch. I was a young man. Uh, so the seeds were planted back then. And then I just thought I would make my own choices and didn't care to much go. And I'd go to Christmas and Easter occasionally and such. And then as life works on you, I think it happens to a lot of people. And then you get to a point, I'd already come to Nashville. I'd already been here and I'm like 31 years old and got to a point where uh, with, with troubles in my life and frustrations and ego and pride and all of that, where you come to a screeching halt and you remember what uh, seeds were planted back then. And in my case, it, became very abrupt. It was, uh, I remember it was in October of 1978. I just said, Lord, I'm yours um, from here point, this point on. And so it was just renewed. And, and he's the one who makes the difference in your life. I became very aware of, of the fact that I had a responsibility, that I could affect people's lives by the spirit with which I did my work. And I was more interested in looking at other people and talking to them and caring about them. And it was an evolution of change inside of me. So it's always been there. Sometimes it goes dormant, and that's the story of a lot of us. Uh, some people stay strong all their lives. Other people drift and come back. And now, for me, that, uh, 78 is a long time. I mean, that's 42 years ago, and it's never gone away. And my desires now, as I got old, as I get older, is now hopefully to still try to make a difference in other people's lives, be a bit of an encouragement to them in their faith. And as John Maxwell, I know, talked about adding value to people and, you know, leaving your legacy in people and not just things. How do you feel well, like, what have you seen from people when you go around, do you feel like a lot, do you feel like the people you've reached out to and inspired when they come to you is like, Hey, thanks to you, this happened. Thanks to you, that happened. Well, you don't know it while you're doing it. When I announced that I was going to retire back in 2017 for television, I've got I got an awful lot of reaction from people and letters and some calls and some emails from people who said uh, that we that I'd said whatever encouraging words to them, and they would go back 30 years. Some of them saying, "I'd say, wait a minute, how do you know?" And they said, "No, here's what you said." and they would remember that. So when you go through life, all you are is you've got your antennas up. You, you're going through your own situations, but you're always aware that you can make somebody's day. I would The easiest thing I would tell, and I've always said to people, is that give somebody an honest compliment each day. 
And I don't mean a phony little, hey, good to talk to you, nice to see you, and you look great, and all that sort of stuff. Study them, listen to them. The greatest thing you can do is listen to people, to what they say, and you can find out about them, and then say something encouraging to them. You know, it may just be, boy, you're really perceptive on what you what you think about. I love it. You've got a lot of talent in this area. Be specific in it. And you do that, it becomes a natural part of you are. Your faith is not something you practice. It's something you become. And by doing that, then you just all of a sudden live your life. And then 30 years later, somebody says to you, hey, you did this back then. And it's kind of the wake behind your boat. You just go through your life. And these people are all a part of your past that you've had an opportunity to go by. If you perceive your life as every day, everyone you talk to and everyone you meet is meant by God for you to cross paths with them, then you're more aware, then you're more perceptive to the fact that you can say something to them that is worthwhile. Uh, and that's just a joy. How many people do you partner with as an accountability partner to, you know, maybe not change their philosophy, but come alongside them and add things to them? I don't have any specific uh, partners. I, um, you know, I am so-called a an official mentor to a man at uh, at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison because I go there and I'm there with those guys. But I also meet with a bunch of guys and I feel very close to all of them. So even though I don't have a specific title to them, I feel in some cases, in most cases, I am influential in their lives. And I have some friends that I'm uh, not friends, people that I meet, meet that I'm. Uh, in, in that, uh, I'm in that respect with them as well. So it's just a natural thing. I don't have any count of anything of numbers. I, I deal with whoever comes across my thinking, whoever's been a part of my life, whoever's been a part of my past, and go from there. When you first started in TV, when you got your first job, what did you feel like? you took away and the lessons you learned from your first job. And then when you came to WSMB and the things you learned from Paul Eels and the guys you've, you know, mentored, like guys, we know Joe Fisher and others that you've dealt with over the years. Well, uh, when I first got my first job, I only worked two places. One was at uh, an NBC television affiliate in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And my whole thing there was, hey, I'm in broadcasting. And I, and I wanted to be on the air and I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be at sports. And it was all about being seen and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and having a good time with what I was doing. So I'm not sure what I learned out of it. But I did learn out of that uh, is, is there's a certain amount of hardship, the way I presented myself. Because when the sports director quit there in 19, uh, whatever, 74, uh, he got angry at people. I thought I should have gotten the job. I'd been there for a couple of years. I had wondered, I was in sports. I was doing the weekend sports, but they didn't hire me. And even consultants even suggested that, uh, you know, maybe I broadcasting might not be the right thing for me, uh, whatever it was about my presentation. And it really just stunned me. It got me frustrated, but I didn't want to quit. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of people go through those things. And it's if you find out for yourself how bad you want it. And so I sent out resumes and such, and one of them was to Nashville, and I wound up being hired. And so it was a determination. So I was kind of full of myself there and thought I was doing all the good stuff. I got the starch taken 
kicking out of my britches, as we say down south, but I got another opportunity in Nashville. And then the example of a man that you mentioned, Paul Eels, who was a sports director at Channel 4 here at WSM-TV. And he was a wonderful, caring uh, man of character. And he was an example to me of how to do this work. So um, he was perfect. He was just what I needed to, to give me an example of how to do this job the right way. And so I'm grateful to that. That's the takeaway I got from him. I tell people whatever I've done that's really worthwhile is really from the example that I had from that man when I first got into this business here in Nashville because you can get really full of yourself thinking you're on TV and you're a hot shot. Basically, Big Dog had to be humble to tick is what you get. I wasn't even that. a Big Dog. I wasn't even a big dog. I was like a chihuahua who thought he was bigger than, a, you know, who thought he was a big bulldog, but he wasn't. So uh, it, it happens at whatever stage you're at, at whatever level you're at. You know, it's like you take a kid working at McDonald's and all of a sudden they say, I want you to go to the window. And that's a big job. Now you can take the order from people. Well, some of those people act like they own the place instead of saying, hey, how are you? Good to see you. It's it, it's the Chick-fil-A theory of glad to be of service. Nice to see you. It, it, it'll go to your head if you're 16 years old. It'll go to your head and you think you're somebody when you're 50 years old. It doesn't change. It all basically, as I tell a lot of people, it all starts at home. What you learn from home, you take out in the real world. Sure. That, that's that's one philosophy that I've, you know, taken from whatever I do. Everything that I've ever done, I've taken from my mom. I've always have tried to be helpful to people one way or the other. Just because you're blind doesn't mean you can't do anything. Well, did you have to go through a period, though, where kind of the woe is me and pity yourself Here's and all the of thing. that sort of thing? You know something? I'm dealing with that valley right now as I speak. But I've dealt with it more than once, and guess what? It's not going to be the first time. It ain't going to be the last. If you really want to know the truth about it, because we all go through valleys. We all have days. But the sad thing about it is, how many people really understand that when you're dealing with valleys, when you're dealing with stress, tension, so on, so forth? There are those that say they care, but do they really? But then there are those that really mean what they say, that they care. It's just one of those things that you keep pressing forward because, yeah, a lot of people want to hear your story, but do they really understand your story? Well, how do you get out of it when you're in one of those valleys? Sometimes I just have to be alone. Sometimes I have to get in my own head and be in my own thoughts. And just let the Lord lead me and help me out of where he wants me to go. Because, yeah, my goal is still to be the first blind PXP voice. But right now, at least I've got this going. At least I feel like I'm doing pretty well with that. I always do silent prayer always or at least try to like with all the interviews i do I always hope and pray that the interview goes well because i leave it with him and then he just goes the rest of the way after that and once the interview is over if it's good hopefully folks like it if they don't even if they don't like it i hope they at least take lessons out of them at least i hope this portion of what i'm doing with the podcast 
besides me just yakking about teams that I cover, hopefully they get a chance to know these people like I wanted to know these people and they can take the lessons from these podcasts and use them and apply them. That's what's my goal the key, with these interviews. What's the, key to, what's the key to being a good interviewer? Oh, boy. I mean, I was going to ask you that question because you don't want interviews in me. I ever will. I mean, I guess getting to know people for who they are. At least, you know, when you listen to their work, you know, hopefully enjoy their work. And then hopefully get to know them as people first. Broadcast your second. Because broadcasting is nice. But you still have a human side too. And I know when you did interviews, you wanted to get to know them as a person first, like you did with me. You didn't have to do it, but you did. Heck, I don't even know how you even thought of the idea to interview me, I guess. Was it from that piece that Mike Oregon did on me a while back in 2016? No, I think when we did it, we got there and somebody said, hey, you ought to go over to the broadcast. And so, you know, there's a young fellow over there who's blind, who's doing a football broadcast. Well, I'd be an idiot if I didn't sit there and say, whoa, that's interesting. Let me find out more about that. So we came over and uh, and, and did that with you. So I, I, it was just out of curiosity for something I thought was very unique. And I think that's another thing that makes a good interview is to be curious. I always wanted to know from different people, you know, what makes them tick, who they are. Same thing with coaches. I mean, I do pregame interviews with coaches and I've been blessed to, you know, build a lot of business relationships and friendships off of the, away from the broadcast with the players and the coaches and things like that. High school, I would get to know the, players and the you know parents getting to know their families even though you'll never be a part of their family in a small way you're watching their progression from young kid to future adult and what they want to do and what they want to be and I know for you you've interviewed a whole bunch of folks in high school folks what do you feel like for you in your years of doing TV, did you feel like this person has potential to be somebody special, even though you probably didn't know it at the time? You talk about people that I might have interviewed and felt that while I was talking to them? Either that or maybe after the interview when you got done with it and you put together the package and you're thinking to yourself, wow. This male well, man or woman has a chance to be somebody and something special, even though you didn't know it at the time when you were doing the interview or putting the package together to roll on TV. Yeah, there's a variety of different things. I can always remember, you know, there was a great Tennessee basketball player, All-American Bernard King, who went out to the NBA as well and was great. I interviewed him when he was a freshman at Tennessee, and he was terrible. He was like street talking and mumbling and couldn't good, good say. And then he's become an incredibly eloquent speaker, so he presented himself in, in that regards. 
you can't tell some people you some things you can tell i've had a lot of interns through the years college students coming in who want to spend the summer with you and work with you and your staff i can tell within an hour or so whether or not they're going to they've got what it takes to be determined enough to want to make a career out of this by the way they listen by the way they presented themselves by the way they talk so you're not quite sure some people turn out better than you think but but uh there's just an element of dedication to uh, what people say sure some people i thought boy you're going to be great and then they weren't necessarily um so it varies so i i you just try to draw out of whoever it is and, and and give them an opportunity to express themselves i like the challenge of people that when people tell me oh you you're gonna have a tough time with him or with her because they don't say much well that's a wonderful challenge how am i going <laughs> to make you feel comfortable enough to talk about yourself and I would always, I would often use things like, I look, we're just going to ramble. You and I are just going to talk. The beauty of television is that I can edit this. By the time we get done, you'll sound like you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. So you just <laughs> relax and have yourself a good time and we'll do it that way. So I like making people feel comfortable. Now you get some national stage people that are very strong in their beliefs and you get what you get. You know, you talk to somebody who's a great athlete or somebody who thinks that they're important and they're just going to give you who they are. They may not talk well at all, um, but that's just who they are. So it just, it, it completely varies. And you sometimes don't know, you just handle what you got in front of you. And yes, we now know Tamika Ketchings is in the women's basketball hall of fame. Well, the basketball hall of fame, but what were your thoughts on her? And when you got a chance to interview Pat Summit about her kids. What were your thoughts? Well, well I love Pat Summit. Uh, you know, because she was oh, she was great. She would she would call you by name. Obviously, she started she started coaching at Tennessee the same year that I started working at Channel Four. So uh, you know, I got to meet her early on and spent time with her throughout the many different years. I always laugh one day because. Uh, we were at our, at one of their practices and she had guys that were in college practice against the girls. She always had them scrimmage against guys. Right. So it would be tougher for them. And I remember saying, cause I, you know, fancied myself being a bit of a ball player. And I said, uh, Hey Pat, I'd like to be able to practice with you guys. She said, those girls will kill you. So just, <laughs> you just go ahead and stay there on the side. And I laughed about that, but she was very thoughtful. She would look at you when you talk to her. Uh, that's a, that's a key. Everyone you meet, everyone that I interview or talk with, I, you look, I look them straight in the eye. In your case, it could just simply be the direction of where your head is at, where your thoughts are. I can tell if you're interested or not. you got to be a great listener in that regard. So hear what they say and feed off of those answers that they give you. Tamika Catchings I, was a great player, and we interviewed her certainly on occasions when they would win championships mm -hmm. at the University of Tennessee. And I was, I was so, I've always been so impressed with the way she uh, carried her whole career and what she did after that and becoming a parent then and being a great athlete in the WNBA. So she's kind of a living testament, and I would, I'm sure, and she has said, the influence that Pat had on her just by the example of how Pat lived her life. And so that's the same thing with Tamika and you sort of pass that on and that's what she's done. And I know we talked about this before, but a lot of the coaches we've talked about when you interviewed them, who were the best coaches besides Pat Summit that you learned valuable lessons from when you you know, sat in a practice 
did an interview with them. Well, there are people that I really liked. I remember, you know, you, you can go back to all kinds of different times, but I loved when Bruce Pearl was went to the University of Tennessee. I really drew to him. I liked his 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 flair and his, his the way he carried himself. And I I sent him an email and I said, "Can we come and follow you in practice?" Because I like I always like to use things that are like natural sound. Put a mic. Can we put him? And he let us come to Knoxville. He let me put a microphone on him. He would talk to me. He would and while in practice, he'd come over and say something to me. He would the way he handled guys and out there. I just loved it. He was so natural in his conversation. As far as depth, people like you cannot get any better than you can, than Tim Corbin at Vanderbilt. Everything in him to him is a life lesson. Mm -hmm. And he's willing to explain it. He loves the idea of talking about it. You had, uh, you had a Don Meyer and David Lipscomb who would do it, but in terms of talking about what he wanted to get out of players, it was a little different. Tim Corbin was the consummate teacher, and he loved to talk about that, so I love being around him. People-wise, one of my favorite interviews has always been Gary Player, who, uh, the senior golfer. Uh, when he would come, he came to Nashville and uh, they played several years there, the senior tour. When you would talk to Gary Player, he would look you right in the eye and he would give you depth in his conversation. He would always relate it to something. There was always a teaching point inside of that. And I love that about him. So those are people that just off the top of my head come to my mind because I love being around them because they're all, they see their, their roles as being somewhat of an instructor in life. And that I, I, to me, I find fascinating. Like you, I don't read fiction. The only fiction that I read is I have Lewis L'Amour Westerns, and I love those because a good guy always wins. Other than that, I read biographies. I read history. I read about people that have done things in their lives because I want to glean from them. I want to see what made you successful, what made you go through this. Uh, one of the best books I ever read was The Melancholy of Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, who was so temperamental in his mood swings, his secretary during the Civil War walked into his office and he, and he had the shades down. He was almost in tears. And then he would come out of that to a press meeting and he would be strong and bold because of what he had to do. And so I'm saying, gosh, almighty, I, that's, I, I can relate to that. Not on that scale, but there are days like you do where I'm down and out. But then I gather myself up and I, you try to keep on going. Those are the things that inspire me, and those are the people I love being around and reading about. I got a Our Daily Bread devotional, ironically called Lincoln's Pockets, a while back, and it was pretty interesting. Uh, <clears throat> um, when they talked about when he was, you know, shot and killed, what they found in his pockets, and so on and so forth, and I'm like, wow, that was interesting that they would use Lincoln's pockets and somehow find a Bible and, you know, lesson out of that. There was some note in his pocket, if I'm not mistaken. That yeah, I think it was something like that. Yeah. I have to go back and listen to it again. I might, I'll forward it to you later, but it was, I'm like, wow, they, they, they basically found a famous president who was assassinated and yet, there's a biblical lesson in it. Yeah. It, it was amazing how some people can take something minuscule and turn it into a teaching point. 
I think I think for a lot of coaches, I think that's why a lot of coaches get into the coaching business because they're teachers first before they're coaches. And well, I there's say, a mix. I think you're right, but I think there's a mix. There are some for whom these are nothing but pawns. These are, and there's it's the game, it's the strategy, and I want to win. Mm-hmm. The greatest of them, which is exactly what you said, the ones that I admire the most are the ones who want to invest in the lives of these athletes and make these people get better men and women. So that's I agree with you completely there. I don't know if you got a chance to interview Bill Belichick or any or like that. No, I- no, I've just been in press conferences with him, like when the Titans played him in the playoffs and things. I've been in press conferences with him. I think he'd be an interesting guy to be with when you're not around a camera and all. Uh, I'd love to know kind of what makes him tick, but I've never been with him. And you mentioned Don Meyer. From what I heard, seen from a lot of the players, they always had a whole bunch of notes in a notebook that Don oh, yeah. Meyer would have, and yep. they would go back and reflect on those notes because there were lessons in there. He may not have, you know, spoken and talked, you know, explained it to them, but they've referenced the notes. He loved sayings. He loved little thought pieces. He loved that, those kinds of stuff. That was Don Meyer. Yep. And that was, uh, that was one of the interesting things about him. And he instilled that in his players. What were your thoughts when, what were your thoughts on Jim Foster when he was at Vanderbilt with all the players at, he was able to get over the years, like your interactions with him. And then Coach Balkum later on after Jim Foster left. And what do you think Vanderbilt Warren's program is now, in your opinion? Foster was somewhat more aloof. I mean, he had great players and he was a good coach, but you couldn't kind of get through to him. He, uh, he, he was very calculating in whatever he said and whatever he did in that respect. Melanie Balkum, I really liked, and, and there would be times we'd talk and she would kind of smile because I would kind of probe into the psychological side of handling players. And I think she really enjoyed that conversation. She was a good teacher. I really mm-hmm. liked being around her. So just different. She was more outgoing. She was more open and more honest for foster it my sense was that i mean he was a good coach but the media was just a a necessary evil of what he had to get out of the way each day or whenever the interviews were there so he could go on with the business of the of his coaching different personalities do you think most coaches act like they hate the media or do you think they just feel like oh here they come again it's their job so let's go ahead and get this over with Part of it, you know, you know, because they, they, some of them just think the media is the enemy, and then we, the media, you know, we try to pry, try to list the stuff, try to find out little things, try to push up. You know, Kevin Stallings at Vanderbilt always had some pro- problems with that because he was a real straight shooter, and he just, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was always, he's the kind of guy if you'd sit there and say, "Say, how's your brother?" and he'd go, "Oh." Why do you want to know? I mean, he was always kind of looking under the surface of what was the motive behind the question. And then he would try to answer in that respect. So it's just different people. Some of them brace it again, the Bruce Pearl. He could take a Jeff Fisher. I love Jeff Fisher with the Titans because he would he would tell you nothing. But he would give, make it the most interesting nothing re, uh, statement in return that you got your sound bite if that's what you're looking for, and you would move on. But he wouldn't give you any inside, and he'd be a psychologist. He would play like with Jacksonville. He'd, you know, he'd do get into their heads and that sort of stuff. So he knew how to play the game. He he was savvy in that sense. So 
some coaches are not that way. They just, uh, you know, they just, uh, you're unnecessary evil and you get out of the way. So everybody's got different personalities. And every team, you would always have go-to players that you knew would give you an interesting interview or an interesting answer to a question. So they became favorites. You would always go to them. Some guys, and that's why it bothered me, the, the, the cliche answers, we're going to give it 110%. we got to play in all phases of the game, the offense, the defense, and the special teams. Well, that doesn't give you anything. Give me a little flower so you'll find the, the people that, that, are, that are, and that becomes from personality. That's the kind of person you're dealing with. Some people are, are wonderful people, but they just don't know how to express themselves, and they're leery of, of how they'll be perceived. So it's, it's been a fun game. Uh, all these years looking for the right kind of people. And I thought the max was 100%. Where did this 110% come from? I know. I know. you got to <laughs> go above and beyond. You know, we got to take it one play at a time and, uh, okay, and one day at a time. And uh, you know, There are all these cliches that, that young – and may, so a lot of cases they reflect the coach. If the coach is buttoned up and close to the best and doesn't say much, well, I'll tell you what, that player is about going to be the same way. You got a freewheeling coach who gives them some freedom and some leeway to say what they want to say, then they go ahead. I always thought uh, Pat Summit's players were very, very interesting to interview, very open and honest. They called her Pat. She mm -hmm. was tough. She was a coach, but there was they called her instead of coach, you know, or your honor, whatever you want. They called her Pat. And so they were very eloquent in their answers. A lot of times, for the most part, in general, women's athletes are better interviews than men. There's somehow a little bit more of a sense of either freedom in them or openness. I've just, uh, I've just found out through the years. No special reasoning for it. It's just been enjoyable. So there's all kinds of reasons for, for players and, and how they speak and coaches as well. What were your thoughts when the UT-UConn rivalry was at its peak? When you actually had to cover it? Yeah. If you ever did? What, what, were, what were your thoughts on it? And did you really think that it would get to the way it would have, that it would get over the years with Pat and Gino and. Well, people loved it because it's, people love conflict. That's what you're always looking for, be it, that makes good television when there's conflict. I knew, I knew Pat. I knew Pat was a straight shooter. She was tough as a strap. Gino Oriema, I, 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 you know, I always thought he was kind of like slicker and boiled okra. He, he knew exactly what to say. He, uh, you know, he knew how to flip your bick. He was arrogant in, in his, in his mannerisms. None of that was, Pat had, had determination about her, but there wasn't that arrogance about her. So it was, a perfect good cop bad cop kind of a situation Gino is a great coach what he does and what he gets out of his players but I knew Pat and I knew what I was getting from her so it was it was all right was, you know it made for great theater and it made mm -hmm. for great journalism to be able to cover that side it had a conflict to it so people were interested you always liked it when you saw a boxing match when you got Muhammad Ali against George Foreman and George is the big bad guy and Ali's guy you like good bad David Goliath you like conflict in all of sports and all of things and that made for great drama so we I enjoyed being a part of it do you think sometimes the David versus Goliath thing can kind of be overused from time to time 
Well, you get teams a lot of time. Most of the time, you know, they'll win and say, nobody gave us a chance. And I'll, all right, all right. Say, whatever motivates you, whatever whatever goes up on the locker room door, or door that is incentive to you. That's why coaches tell players, don't say something stupid that they can put up on the wall to kind of fire. Michael Jordan will look for anything to, 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 to rile him up, you know, in, in some respect. And so you, you get that. So that's okay. Good, you know, David Goliath. Some cases it is that. In 85, when Villanova beat Georgetown and shot 78% from the field and won, won a game they had no business winning, right. that's David against Goliath. That's that's pretty cool stuff. And you get some of that. So, that again, that makes that's what makes sports fun. Speaking of Michael Jordan, under the legendary late, great Dean Smith, North Carolina, I don't know if you got a chance to, you know, cover them when they came to Nashville much. I don't know how often they would. But if you did... What do you remember about the legendary Dean Smith and the North Carolina Tar Heels? Well, Dean Smith, I you know, I, obviously I didn't know. I don't know. I'm trying to recall. I, I got two opportunities to interview Jordan. I think they came here for some sort of a preseason thing or something. Uh, I interviewed him. Oh no, he was already with the Bulls. They came here for an exhibition, for an right. exhibition game. So, and then I was around him. Uh, I'll always remember when he tried to play baseball and they, he came in to play a baseball game with the Birmingham Barons against a team. We had two teams at the time. This was the Nashville Express and they played at Old Greer Stadium and 10,000 people showed up and the Birmingham Barons pulled in in a brand new bus that Michael Jordan bought because he wasn't going to ride around playing double A baseball in a grungy old bus. And all these people were there, and I got permission to be in the dugout with my photographer in the visitor's dugout. So Jordan would sit down. I had a promise that I wouldn't say a word to him or I'd put a microphone in his face. I got to sit five feet away from him and see how he'd go out to go come out of the dugout, and fans would be trying to pull a cap off his head or try to get an autograph or he was trying to play baseball. So it was crazy in that regard, just to see him. And then we got to interview him afterwards. There was certainly no question about that. There was an aura about him. That, that was great. So that's the kind of thing. I didn't know Dean Smith and the one around him, right. just like anybody else. But I got to see my – I thought one of the coolest things that Michael Jordan did, they always talked about and said that he made his own players better with the Chicago Bulls. He would drive them to be better. Right. He, in that game, that baseball game, I think he struck out once. He hit a little ground ball and he hit a little pop fly to right field, if I'm not mistaken. That was it. So it was 0 for 3. But I remember one of his players struck out and came back to the dugout, threw his helmet, got mad. He got a call out on a bad call. Michael Jordan walked over, put his arm on this guy's shoulder and said, settle down, man. You're a good player. Don't let this stuff get to you. Think about the rest of the game, the rest of the guys. And I said, that's why he's great. Because he's not only about Michael Jordan. Here he was making $30 million uh, playing minor league baseball and not very good, but he's still trying to be an encouragement to somebody else. Tried to make another player better. I'll always remember that. And I talk about it as often as I can. And for Michael Jordan and others that think about others before themselves. How many of those people like we mentioned before, like the Gary Player, Michael Jordan's, who are some of the other folks that you can say, oh, you know, they, 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 you know, they put other folks before themselves. They, I, I'm, 
Well, I'm not sure they put them to other before that. They're the incredible eagles. Michael Jordan had these incredible confidence, incredible eagle. And mm. it was just, you know, some people are just born that way. Follow me. Michael Jordan wrote one book. And in that book, he said, I was never afraid to fail. I want the ball in the, my hands in the last five seconds with the crowd roaring and the game of the championship on the line. I want it. I can't relate to that. I, that's just beyond me because I, I know what the agony of defeat is like. I know what choking is like. I'm not wired that way. I wish I could be. There were a few occasions I'm, I'm pretty good on a golf course or I was a pretty good athlete, but I can't understand that. But then I heard you know, Jerry Rice when he went into the NFL Hall of Fame interview and he said, what made you great? And he said, I was afraid to fail. And mm -hmm. I said, now I can relate to that. So it's a whole variety of kind of people that you have, that I've met. I can't list you all kinds of people. There, 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 there's just so many different kinds of athletes who've done it in so many different ways. And that's what I like. I was always amazed and impressed with the people that could block out the noise and block out the crowd, but they didn't do it just at, at that moment. They were either raised that way or they played as young athletes in more and more games and more and more pressure and they failed sooner or later they got tired of losing and I'm going to win and so it became an evolution and then they became a great player. So that's been the joy that there have been all kinds of those different varieties of players. When we talk about experience as a good teacher, as John Maxwell put it this morning in a statement of strength, when he says experience will give you the test and give you the lesson on the back end. How many people do you think, in your honest opinion, that reflection is a vital part of getting the experience to learn the lessons to use the lessons to pass on to others so they can be better in their life. Some people are just chosen. See, you, you, you're, you're blind. So, so the challenge to you, presented to you is, what do I do despite that? Do I want people to pity me? No. Do I want people to treat me differently? No. I want to show that I can handle this. This is a self-examination. This is what I've been handed. This is what I'm going to do. One of my dear friends is Tim Shaw, the linebacker for the Tennessee Titans, former linebacker and special teams guy who has ALS. Yep. I've worked with ALS for a long, long time. I visited a dear friend who had it for, uh, for eight years. Every single week, I visited her till she died. She stayed alive with a trach in her throat, weighed 53 mm -hmm. pounds but had this indomitable spirit that would not quit. And there, that's an inspiration to me. So Tim Shaw, in the middle of it all, he now has to work on a computer that he, that he works with his eyes, and he is so frail and he is so weak, but he still smiles and he still wants to write. And he wrote a book while being uh, in this position, and, and he is an encouragement that blows me away. I don't know if I can handle that. By the grace of God, I've not been given the cancer or the or, or I'm not blind. I can do things. I'm healthy in, in that regard. So I've not had the same challenge. Maybe God knows that I would probably fail that. But I think he's picked a few special people, and I would think you're in that group, that he said, I can give them some real trials and allow real trials to happen to them because they are strong enough to make a difference in somebody else's life and be an inspiration despite their so-called handicap. 
So those are special people. And those are people that I draw to and that I, when I'm around, I need to be around them. They make me feel better, make me feel quit whining about my plight in life and the things <laughs> that are going on in my life and give me a courage to get up and get after it and quit sulking about things going on in my life. So there you go. And you're a part of that with what you're doing. Tim Shaw is and so many other people that I've met. I'm drawn to those people. I want to tell their stories because everybody needs encouragement and everybody needs hope. Especially in these unknown and trying times that we have no idea sure. when they're going to end. I mean, we all need it. Yeah, Mentally, physically. I mean, it's just one of those things where you have to find a way to give people something tangible not phony to hold on to yep like I, like i always tell people with with things that i share just because i'm sharing it with you don't stop just with yourself share it with other people because you don't know who might need it in your circle or in your groups that they can say hey I remember when this person X, Y, Z, A, B, C did this, did that. They shared this and I used it and got better because of it. Well, there you go. Well, look, I'm, I'm about five minutes away from another meeting, but with that in mind, it's a good place kind of to close if you don't mind. And I will tell you or suggest to you that you probably feel better about yourself now after our conversation because we've talked about other people who have been through things and now you see more of your purpose in life at the end of this conversation, right? Yeah, ho hopefully we can pick back up on this again at some point when your schedule allows and we can kind of pick back up on the piggyback on from your TV and hopefully we can have a little bit more fun with people that you've met and things like that and some stories about sure. people you've dealt with and the who, what, why, when, and where and everything else. And hopefully just let me know what your schedule is and hopefully we can get you back as a return guest on this pod. Thank you for, be, for redoing this with me and it was a blessing and a pleasure and hopefully we can do this again. All right, Luther. Good to talk with you, my friend. You take care. Uh, thank you, Rudy. No, no, thank you for the time. I mean, don't thank me because, yeah, I reached out to you. But thank you for giving me the time again. You didn't have to, but you did. Ah, glad to do it. You got it. All right, my friend. Take care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.